Welcome back to Let Christy Take It, your pop culture podcast. This week's guest is none other than Dean Friedman. We're really thanking our lucky stars, and we even got in contact with the McDonald's girls when he agreed to come on. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. And now thanking his lucky stars, because he's number six in the chart, is Dean Friedman. So, Dean Friedman, welcome to Let Christy Take It podcast. Join us all the way from New York. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Great. So uh, should we get started and maybe ask you what, uh, what was life like growing up in New Jersey? Well, you know, I grew up in Paramus, New Jersey, uh, which is a, a suburb of New York City. So it's across the river from uh, Manhattan. It's really kind of an idyllic childhood in terms of where I lived. <laughs> there were tree-lined streets and we had, uh, you know, local bowling alley and shopping market. In fact, one of the first indoor shopping centers in America was the Bergen Mall in Paramus, New Jersey. So it was uh, a nice place to grow up. And it took me years, really into my uh, you know late teenage years, till I realized that the whole world didn't look exactly like Paramus, New Jersey. And um, Dean, there's a great story about how you bought your first guitar, age nine, with a bag of quarters that you've saved. I really hope it's a true story. Oh, it's it's totally true. I uh, I, I earned uh, money on a newspaper route. I was delivering the Bergen uh, record on my bicycle, and uh, sometimes uh, our dog Joey would help me on my rounds. Until one day he decided to relieve himself on all the newspapers. I had to set him out on the lawn to dry in the sun. <laughs> they were a little uh, yellow, but uh, they were still deliverable. Um, so yeah, I earned, I think I earned about 80 bucks that summer, kept them in a big bag of quarters and went to 48th street on uh, Manny's music, which is music row where all the music stores used to be. And I dumped my bag of quarters on the counter and then bought my first, uh, guitar, which I was real pleased about. And it, uh, served me well. So you, you mentioned Manny's music. Now, unfortunately it's no longer open, but it was a legendary music shop frequented by the who's who of music royalty. By any chance, did you get you, did you get to get your uh, picture on the Wall of Fame? I did. I was very uh, honored to have my picture somewhere way up in the corner near the ceiling uh, after my first album came out. So yeah, it's gratifying. Sort of made me feel part of that history, all that music lore on Music Row. Yeah, by the time you were a teenager, you were playing local gigs. What were those early gigs like? You know, I had been. Uh, my mom was a singer and performer, and so. She was always dragging me up on stage for her gigs, and and that sort of acclimated me to being uh, in front of the public and performing. So my first early gigs were summer camp uh, during a a cookout around the campfire and uh, coffee houses uh, when they started uh, sprouting up. And uh, I guess I was about 15 when uh, I got paid to play my first gig at a coffee house. I think I got like 15 bucks. And I thought, wow, this is great i'm getting paid to do something i would like doing anyway and that sort of started off down this wayward career uh you worked your way up from playing coffee shops and you got signed to a record label what was that like well you know i'd been writing songs since i was like nine and sending out demos since the time i was about 15 and i had a wall full of rejection letters from every major label in the united states which i'm not sure exactly why but i actually taped them to the wall which served, I guess, some kind of perverse inspiration. And uh, I was uh, studying music at City College, CCNY, City College of New York uh, in Manhattan. And uh, I was taking a class in vocal pop music 
with a guest lecturer, David Bromberg. And David Bromberg is legendary singer, songwriter, performer, guitar player, who is sometimes referred to as the godfather of Americana here in this country. And uh, I played him some songs. I kept nudging him uh, until finally he introduced me to the folks who ran uh, a nightclub in the village named the Bottom Line Nightclub, which at the time was a premier showcase for new artists uh, in the city. And they became my managers. And uh, it took me uh, around to a few producers and labels. And off the bat, I was offered a record contract uh, by a small independent label, Lifelong Records, that Jim Croce had been signed to. Uh, uh, he had sadly passed away a couple of years before that. In any case, they signed me to a deal, sort of kicked things off. First single off that first album was Ariel. It was a top 20 hit in the States. I I guess I never really looked back since then. I've been doing this ever since, along with a variety of other multimedia. Uh, song Ariel, in, in, especially in the States, it would be the song that you're most associated with. And as you mentioned, it was a huge success. How did you, as a young man, handle that initial level of success? It was a little perplexing because on one hand, I was having hit records back to back here and in the UK. On the other hand, I wasn't getting any money for it. <laughs> and it's just the nature of the music business in general. It hasn't really changed very much. Uh, but in those days, it was the labels uh, uh, taking advantage of you. Now it's all the streaming services doing the same. So uh, there was a dichotomy. I, I understood that I was making progress and that uh, I was uh, acquiring an audience and, and uh, that people seemed to enjoy my songs. But I also understood that there were limits to the, uh, how should I say it, the vision and brain power of the folks that were managing me and, and on my label. You know, after the second album uh, had come out and I still was having to borrow money to pay my rent, uh, after having, you know, multiple chart records, uh, I finally decided it was time to part ways with with the vo those folks. And so initial appearance of success was exciting and fun. Took a while to translate that into something that I could actually pay the bills with, <laughs> keep the electricity on and, and food on the table. Uh, it took a while, but I figured it out. You should mention that uh, your first album was called Dean Friedman. Yes. Was there any other titles bandied around? I mean, you know, to call the your your first album to, to present yourself to the world, and here I am. The first album is called Dean Friedman. Uh, you know what? I I don't recall being privy to any kind of a decision. I think they were just trying to introduce me, and frequently uh, a, a choice that folks make on a first album. You know, when it got time for the second album, I made sure that my input was uh, heard uh, and taken to heed. And that was well, well said, the rocking chair, uh, which they were totally perplexed about. But uh, it made perfect sense to me. And uh, you know, I think ultimately it was a good choice. But Dean, you mentioned well, well said, the rocking chair. And over this side of the pond, one of your most well-known songs, Lucky Stars, is from that. And it's a beloved song, uh, a huge hit, this side of the pond. Uh, how did the song come about? It's essentially a, a quarrel set to music. How did it happen? Well, Karen, 
the summer before I was still driving in a, new, a taxi in New York City to to pay my bills and uh, listening to a lot of country music on the radio. At the time, this was, I guess, 76, 77, there were not a lot of duets in pop music, but there had always been a long tradition of duets in country music. So in some ways, Lucky Stars was sort of my pop version of a country duet, filled with all the angst and turmoil and uh, love and uh, and squabbling and emotion that you'll find in in a good country song. Uh, but I tried to uh, translate that in terms of a, a pop record, which admittedly also had its roots in, you know, Broadway musicals. It's sometimes described as a sort of a mini miniature Broadway musical condensed into a three-minute pop song. So I, I was sort of drawing on all those d disparate elements. And uh, the truth is, when I... Uh, played the track for the label they didn't want it on the album they said why do you want to put this duet on this you're a solo singer songwriter and uh, i said i had to argue to keep it on the album and say look it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice song i think people are gonna like it and again i'm glad i was able to get my way in that one it's instance. a it's a beautiful song and it starts lovely and it ends beautifully come over here like most rows when the rows in my house i'm in the, I'm in the spare room but it ends perfectly and it wraps it all up but how did the duet come up with denise how did you manage to get denise maris on the record uh well denise was working uh with a a guy named don palouse uh, who was an engineer who engineered my first album uh and don was a good guy and invited denise down to the studio uh while i was there and uh asked her to sing for me and uh, she opened her voice and her voice filled the room and so afterwards, when I had written Lucky Stars, uh, it occurred to me that she'd probably do a, 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 a bang-up job uh, singing the vocal. Uh, that she did. Yeah, that's a fantastic song. Still stands up today, Dean. Beautiful, beautiful song. Yes, I saw Lisa. Is that why you're angry? I wasn't angry. Maybe a little. Not even maybe. Must be the weather. Now don't be a baby. You've 20 albums under your belt now, Dean. What do you prefer, recording or playing live? They each offer their own unique kinds of uh, satisfactions and fr <laughs> frustrations. I'm working on a new album now, and there's something really exciting about gradually hearing your vision realized in an audio palette. Uh, you know, something that you sort of thought about and tried to construct and imagine in your mind, but then hearing it come out of a pair of speakers can be a lot of fun, really satisfying. Uh, it's a real pleasure when I get it right. I don't always get it right, but uh, I keep trying to. That's the goal. At the same time, getting on stage and performing for an audience is own unique kind of thrill, in part because uh, not just that it's instant feedback and a reaction, but there's a real-time ongoing connection with the audience. Uh, it really is constant and, and instantaneous, and you just don't find that in a studio. Uh, that that kind of feedback has a very extended delay uh, until you get people's reactions to it. Uh, but uh, being on stage uh, is always electric and always fun, and it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to get to share my songs with what's always a really appreciative audience.
So that's something I've always been grateful for. Dean, from, from listening to your music over the years, personally, I, I would consider you a storyteller, albeit your stories are set to music. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, I would, Derek. And actually, that's pretty much how I think about what I do. I, I think of myself as a uh, someone who writes short stories set to music. I'm always trying to think about the scene, the location, the lighting, uh, you know, the ambient sounds, and who's populating that scene and what kind of conversations they're having and how they're relating to each other. So uh, I guess in a way, it's an extension of Lucky Stars and the Deli Song, which were sort of set pieces uh, that uh, were telling those kinds of stories, but in a kind of a dialogue with a narrative is telling a story, you know, either borrowed from my own life or the lives of friends or just, you know, what's going on around the world. Uh, but then I get to draw on my uh, poetic license, which I always keep in my back pocket, uh, which gives me an excuse to basically lie and make things up. Brilliant. And um, you've also been involved with scoring some movies and TV shows over the years. How does that differ from recording music solely for commercial release? Well, it's a lot of fun in a different way, uh, in part because when I'm writing film or, you know, case of TV, I'm usually writing with a specific brief that the director or producer has in mind. And the idea is to serve the scene, to serve the character. You know, when I'm writing one of my own songs, it can be daunting looking at a sort of blank piece of paper trying to find inspiration. But when, when someone provides you a context for what music or, or, or material or a song uh, is, is required to support, that's a type of direction that gives me goals and signposts and helps provide me a, a direction uh, in terms of how I want the song to take shape and evolve. And, and in some ways, that's very liberating uh, because I'm not you know, staring into this vast, endless space, uh, I, I have sort of a distant object that I'm trying to reach, and uh, I just have to figure out how to get there. Obviously, a very sociologically minded uh, man, and you can you can read people and read scenarios. How do you think America is going to emerge from this Trump area and the pandemic? Do you think songwriters now will have a whole slew of material coming out in the coming year? Well, I have no doubt that you know, even in the face of real horror and, and tragic suffering by people all across the world. That even beside that, this slowing down uh, and uh, strange isolation has provided artists with the space and time uh, to engage their art, their music or their songs or their writing or, or painting, whatever it is, in a way that uh, normal life doesn't necessarily provide you the means to do. You know, I've been working on the new album for eight months. That's more time than I've ever worked on a new album, uh, in part because I couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> I couldn't tour. Again, even in the face of the disaster we've all endured, I'm grateful to have had the time and fortunate enough to, to remain uh, relatively isolated to be able to pursue my art. And so I'm sure that something, a circumstance common to artists all over the world, and do, I do expect that will find its way to people's ears and eyes and hearts. Um, and some of it will specifically address the trauma of this pandemic, and not to mention the Trump era. Uh, but some of it will just address life in general. And I think I could say the same about the new album. 
because there are definitely a couple of tracks that address specifically the pandemic, as well as the the terror of a four-year reign uh, by a sociopathic con artist who just hoodwinked uh, almost half uh, of the population uh, into thinking that he was uh, working on their behalf uh, as opposed to his own behalf. It's incredible thing that we think we look back at history and think we learn from history and we're doomed to repeat it. But I mean, there was another psychopath who told people what they wanted to hear, albeit Trump doesn't have his level of evilness, but it's amazing how, how easily people get brought in. It's amazing. It's frightening. Just a reminder that charismatic sociopaths uh, or psychopaths aside, that those feelings of scapegoating and hating the other uh, and fear and a willingness to blame are just part of humanity and all our cultures to some degree. And uh, we best not lose sight of that, that that hate and evil is in us as a species. Uh, and when we may believe that we're not like that or that we're above it, then we leave ourselves open uh, to uh, being subject to the real threats of it following through on its potential to enslave and do great harm to, to the world and, and to people in general. So, you know, not to, I don't think I can overstate the, the case that we dodged a bullet when Joe Biden became president. We dodged a, a, a bullet, not a bullet, but a, a heat-seeking thermonuclear device that would have just blown up this country. And uh, the aftershocks would have been felt everywhere uh, around the planet uh, and still are, you know, to a degree. It just can't be overstated uh, how much damage he did uh, and how much more damage he could have done if he had won and can still do even in his doddering uh, retirement seclusion in, in Mar-a-Lago. So uh, it's something I, I don't take for granted uh, and I don't assume is over by any means. Uh, and again, you know, it's whatever the phrase is, it's something <laughs> our peace and prosperity and democracy requires constant vigilance. And uh, uh, we sort of almost dropped the ball. Fortunately, we're seemingly on a, a better path. But a good Irishman in charge now, Dean. Uh, there you go. We touched on um, some of the score work that you've done and you've done the music for one of the most brilliant shows ever to come out of the UK, Boone. Did you get an opportunity to, to I'll say work with, but to engage with Michael Elphick or Neil Morrissey during that period? I did. Uh, and it was a great cast and crew. It was a great bunch of folks. Uh, you know, Michael Elphick was a real sweet man and a gentleman. And uh, Neil Morrissey, <laughs> a, a funny guy. And uh, really, it was a treat to, to be able to contribute to that. And, uh, you know, there were a few occasions where uh, I was on set while they were performing my music. Uh, and I, I always had a great time. And uh, also got a chance to meet folks like uh, Michael Miller, who was an editor, who went on to uh, co-write and produce uh, a, a low-budget horror film, which is now a cult 
horror classic called I Bought a Vampire Motorcycle, which, as you know, also starred uh, Michael Elphick and Neil Marcy from Boone. And uh, it was a ridiculous <laughs> plot and movie, and Michael Miller uh, invited me to do the music, which I was thrilled to, to contribute. And uh, it was a great time. Uh, you know, you asked earlier what it's like scoring for TV and film. Well, it was a bit of a challenge trying to write music for a blood-sucking vampire motorcycle. But I feel like I uh, I was up to the challenge, and uh, the results are there uh, on uh, late-night uh, cable or to stream somewhere <laughs> off of Netflix or Amazon uh, to, to see for yourselves. Uh, it, it was a great experience, and look forward to doing more. One of these days, we always talk about the... I bought a vampire. I bought another vampire motorcycle. We'll see if that ever comes to fruition. We just need the funding. Could be an Netflix special. Now it's death time. Made of steel, forged in hell. No one is safe from the wheels of death. Beware, the vampire motorcycle could be right up your street. She's such a lethal machine. She runs on blood instead of gasoline. So how do you keep progressing as a singer and songwriter? Uh, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you going? Well, you know, music has always been a, a part of my life. And it's just, I guess, you know, aside from everything else, aside from the business and, and that it's how I support myself, you know, keep a roof over our heads. It's, uh, I guess, this infinite fascination uh, with uh, being able to continually learn more about music and about every instrument and about every musical style and idiom uh, and about every technique and, and uh, how to play and about performing and about writing. Uh, it just never ends. Uh, the joy that you can derive from exploring it and learning about it and uh, playing it. It's always struck me that, you know, Doctors and lawyers, they practice their profession. Uh, and, uh, you know, a surgeon might operate. But if you're a musician, when you go to work, you go to play. When I'm on the bandstand, I'm playing. When I'm on stage, I'm playing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a joy to that, which uh, I always try to keep in mind uh, and not take for granted. So uh, it's that sense of play. It's that a sense of never-ending discovery and learning uh, and the infinite possibilities that keeps me inspired and motivated and, and keep doing what I do. I'll tell you the truth, making an album is a huge pain in the ass, keeping track of everything and, you know, trying to maintain that sense of uh, aspiring to excellence and, and to and try not to mess up. That can be exhausting and uh, emotionally a challenge to get into the studio. I'm in my studio right now towards the end of this album project, having to sort of juggle in my mind the, the possibility that this whole thing is not going to come crashing down before it's done uh, and that we won't have some giant electromagnetic pulse that uh, erases all the, uh, the bits and bytes and waveforms that I've spent months and months and months trying to painstakingly uh, get just right. But that's a, an act of faith and optimism. Uh, that uh, hopefully at the end of the day leads to a piece of work, an album, a collection of songs that people can enjoy all over the world, you know, for as long as they can listen to music. 
Dean, you're saying about inspiring songwriters. You, you worked with Chris Difford on his uh, songwriters retreat in France. How was that? Uh, well, I I got to know Chris um, uh, when he very graciously uh, agreed to perform uh, at a, uh, a something called Songfest, which was just a, a music festival that I put together uh, to invite all my you know friends who were all these terrific songwriters uh, to share our music with our common audiences. I've always been a huge fan of Chris Difford and, and uh, the songs that he he's written uh, solo and also as part of Squeeze. And uh, there's there's a level of detail and literacy uh, and narrative to his songwriting, uh, which I've always had an affinity for. Uh, and that's, that's sort of how I also approach songs. And so, you know, Up the Junction tells this very elaborate tale. You know, for me, that's... The, the same sort of approach that I, that I tried to take sitting down to write Ariel, even though in Ariel it was a much more innocent uh, storyline. Uh, anyway, so uh, I, I have enormous respect for Chris Difford, not just for his sorority, but also the way he engages with his audience and with his peers. Uh, he's got a generous spirit. He's a good guy. You know, he delights in sharing his music and his musical knowledge with uh, audiences and, uh, as you say, aspiring singer-songwriters. Dean, you also sit in a very select group of musical artists that have had a song banned by the BBC. Uh, that's so true, yes. Can uh, you tell us, A... Sex Pistols. <laughs> yeah, can you tell us, uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, can you tell us why the song was banned? And also, there's a kind of a, a ray of sunshine at the end of it because there was some, I think McDonald's used the cover version of the song years later. It's true. Um, uh, I, I wrote the song McDonald's Girl. And, you know, as soon as I wrote it, I knew that it was just a pure pop song. And uh, I was real happy about it. And uh, uh, it was recorded on my third album, Rumpled Romeo. And uh, at the time, I was signed to Epic in the UK. Uh, and there was some concern that the BBC, which was very strict then about anything that hinted of commercialism, uh, there was some concern that the BBC would not play it. They would use that as an excuse. But the folks at Epic, oh, no, 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 we'll, we'll put it out anyway. Uh, so they put it out. It was officially banned by the BBC, and Epic dropped me. <laughs> so And that you know led me into the music business wilderness for many years. Um, so it was a bad call on their part. But uh, I always believed in the song, and it was just a few years later that a then-unknown band out of Canada called Bare Naked Ladies uh, did a cover version of it, which became one of their first airplay hits in, in Canada before they ever signed a major deal. Um, and uh, uh, the co-founder and lead singer, uh, uh, Stephen Page, uh, had heard the song, and uh, they did a cover version of it. Um, and uh, after that, another band called The Blenders did a cover, which went to number one in Norway. Now, uh, it was satisfying to me. I wasn't making any money off of this, but it was satisfying that the song just insisted on being heard and that, that people were enjoying it. And, and, th and then after a while, the internet came along and then there were even more covers and people started making videos of McDonald's Girl and it went, they went viral. And there's hundreds of videos of people uh, singing their own versions or lip syncing different versions of McDonald's Girl and acting them out high schools and colleges, a cappella groups all over the world. 
Uh, and uh, so again, I wasn't seeing a dime, but it was nice that it went viral, that the song was so good uh, and people so enjoyed it that they, it just persisted in, in, in spite of the industry itself. And uh, as you say, the little light at the very end of the tunnel was uh, 35 years later, I finally get a phone call from corporate headquarters at McDonald's. And Mr. Freeman, we'd like to license uh, your song McDonald's for a national TV and radio campaign. And uh, uh, you might have to bleep this, but uh, what I said to them was, well, that's great, but what took you so fucking long? <laughs> and uh, it, it's, uh, uh, it's satisfying. Um, that, uh, you know, it, in its own way, it sort of had finally earned its place in the, uh, the music business infrastructure, uh, commercially in its own way. So, Ain't that uh, BBC? well, yeah, well, nowadays the BBC plays all kinds of hamburger songs, but, uh, <laughs> uh, one of these days they'll, uh, play it on again. Now I, I have to say, uh, with, uh, much appreciation, in Ireland, uh, I didn't have that problem because the McDonald's Girl got a lot of airplay in Ireland. And I was really surprised the first time after uh, the album was released, when I toured uh, Ireland and, and played Dublin, that everybody knew McDonald's Girl. And I thought, how did that happen? I thought it was banned. But it turns out you guys have uh, You'd really, excellent musical taste. <laughs> it would want to be the most controversial song in the world to be banned. We, the Irish won't ban a song over a burger. Well, I was <laughs> pleased to learn that. And uh, so it's one of the reasons I always have, a, there's always a special place in my heart uh, for, for playing uh, over in Ireland. Dean, you've had a career that spanned over 40 years and you must, you know, learn some amazing life lessons about the music business. What advice would you give to a 20-year-old Dean Friedman starting out? That's a tough one because the the industry itself has changed so dramatically since I started out. I never forget the fact that whatever amount of success I've had in the industry was also a result of good fortune. You know, I, I had to be good at what I did and I had to work hard at it, but there was a, a measure of luck that's inescapable. Anyone that's successful that thinks that luck was not a part of it is kidding themselves. Um, having said that, I would tell that young person uh, that the music business is, is like every other business. Uh, it, it might not seem it, but it still comes down to personal relationships. Um, uh, if I had not met David Bromberg and persuaded him that uh, my songs were worth listening to, uh, I would never would have been introduced to the folks who became my managers, who introduced me to a label, who put out my record. Uh, and so that it ultimately does start with relationships. Uh, and that's true of even onerous record company executives and lawyers. Um, that uh, as a young musician, I, it took me years and years and years to, to learn, A, how to speak their language, to, to understand really what they're talking about, because uh, there is a purity to the language of business uh, that as an artist, you can find really objectionable when they're talking about your stuff as product. 
But when you understand their perspective that, you know, selling a CD or an LP or a digital download is like selling a pair of shoes or socks, uh, then you, you get a better understanding of where they're coming from. And that usually helps uh, if you understand other people in the business, uh, you can better communicate with them. And if you can better communicate with them, then you don't have to have contempt for them, <laughs> which is what most artists starting out have for their labels and managers uh, and agents, uh, because a lot of that behavior is contemptuous and worthy of contempt. Um, but what I'm saying is that uh, like a part of any business, it's learning the, the language of the business, how to communicate and and finding a way to, to have respect for everyone else in the business that doesn't do your job. And uh, that's not an easy thing to achieve. And I don't always succeed at doing so. But I would say that's something really important. And the other thing is to to find a way to make a living, whatever your pursuit is, doing something that you really love. Because if you're doing something that you don't love, then you're never going to have the extra energy to follow through. You're never going to have the extra motivation to overcome obstacles and uh, pursue what sometimes seems like a hopeless uh, task. Uh, if, if, if you love what you're doing, you're just going to do it. Uh, and that's the great advantage. Uh, and not always, not, everyone's not always fortunate enough to, to do what they're, they're trying to do or to realize those kinds of dreams. But if you have some common sense and some discipline and some talent, uh, which you can also get by practicing, uh, and some measure of luck and good fortune, uh, at least you can get some portion of, of whatever it is you're looking to achieve. Uh, don't ever imagine you're going to get it all or that if you get what you desired, it's what you actually imagined it to be in the first place because it never really is. That's a, that's a good answer. That's a good, you know, that's a, a good answer. But I tried to cover no, all the There's bases. no such thing as a long, we've as long as possible. There's no such thing as a long winded <laughs> answer. And just, you know, we spoke a little bit about the, the pandemic, but just professionally, personally, like, how did the, 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 the pandemic affect you and your family, like, you know, in New York? Well, first of all, I'll say this is that uh, we know folks that, that sadly died from this pandemic who didn't need to because of our government uh, and the way it was mishandled. But, you know, we didn't lose anybody really close in our family. And I, again, I don't take that for granted. So beyond, you know, that most profound impact that so many people uh, ha have endured, we just experienced what everyone else uh, that was fortunate enough to, to remain in lockdown experienced, which is that we were hyper- uh, anxious and paranoid about opening packages and about going shopping. Uh, and we wore masks and uh, we social distanced and we didn't see friends for a long time. Um, and we sort of embraced the new weird reality. An inevitable measure of sort of an undercurrent of anxiety and worry uh, that goes along with that. You try to counterbalance it with some of the strange freedoms that you enjoy uh, of all this extra time and ability to focus uh, on things that you weren't necessarily able to prior. And uh, we also experienced all this strange uh, shifts in attitude and 
you know, feelings about other people's responsibility as far as whether they wore masks or not, uh, and other people's sense of urgency or caution uh, as that understanding shifted for the experts and then the society that followed the experts, and then how you emotionally grapple with those changes in guidance uh, as those changes shifted. Uh, and even now, uh, as the, they're announcing that the UK and, and uh, in our instance, New York is uh, on the verge of opening up, there's a, a high measure of skepticism because of how badly government officials bungled these rollouts and, and the lack of preparation to begin with. Uh, so I still approach it all with caution. Uh, and uh, I just, you know, try to keep my eyes open and sort of find whatever weird sense of reality might exist somewhere between that lag time between the shift in guidance and how I actually live my life. Of course, getting those two jabs uh, does change your perspective, gives you sort of a measured sense of security, even with the knowledge that there are variants and the knowledge that who knows how long the immunity will last. Uh, and we can only take our cues from the news that you choose to take seriously because there are a lot of different sources of news. And, and for you, was your, your music an escape? Like, do you still play every single day? I try to. It wasn't an escape in this sense that when I am committed to a project like an album, it is, a for me, part because it's, you know, budgetary and pandemic constraints. I'm doing everything myself with some notable exceptions is that I, I am having some select musicians and family do some remote recording uh, along with it. But by and large, 95% of this album is something that I've been doing on my own. So it's an enormous amount of work and, and a commitment and and uh, to get it all done in some kind of time frame. So just that mission, that sense of a mission and, and, and commitment to, to get this done keeps me focused on this music project which is a great distraction from uh, whatever's going on around the world around me. And uh, yes, in times of anxiety, you know, whether it's the world in general or my life in particular, uh, that's one of the wonders of music is that uh, it will transport you to a place of calm and peace uh, or of righteous rage and indignation. Uh, but it has that ability to take over uh, and require absolute focus. Uh, and that is liberating, really help in what are sometimes dire circumstances. And then uh, is there a release date planned for the album? Well, <laughs> once I actually finish it, uh, I'll, I'll be thinking about a release date. Um, I, I am now sort of in my mind <laughs> thinking about sort of preliminary release uh, in September, but that could shift as well because, you know, strategically and in terms of everything involved uh, as far as positioning the release with all the streaming services and manufacturing CDs uh, and trying to coordinate it with a tour, that it might not actually happen until uh, the new year. But I'm still undecided. I still have to finish it. Uh, I'm very close to the end. All but one of the tracks is fully recorded. Most of those tracks have already been mixed and mastered. Very close to the end. The end is in sight, uh, but it's still, you know, it's still an anxious time as I'm trying to uh, keep all the balls in the air, uh, doing this virtual juggling act filled with uh, electrons and uh, uh, bits and bytes. Uh, but it's uh, it's getting there. I'm feeling good about it. 
Absolutely. And I hope you get the tour. You know, you're no stranger to these shores. Will we see you back in Ireland? Oh, most definitely. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping that when it's time for me to get back and tour, uh, Arthur's Pub in Dublin will be open again because it's a place, one of my favorite venues to hang out and, and perform. Uh, uh, but in any case, I'll definitely... Uh, be in your neck of the woods in the not too distant future. Definitely by sometime in 2022, uh, you'll uh, you'll see me somewhere in your in your neighborhood. I promise that. Well, Dean, our final question, and we ask this to all our guests: It's the end of the night in the last chance saloon. You have one dollar left in your pocket. The jukebox is there. It's one dollar, one song. What do we play, Dean Freeman, out with? Well, I have to say, just off the top of my head, uh, it would be a, a song called Brandy uh, by Looking Glass. And uh, it, it's one of those songs that just hit me when I was a kid uh, at first hearing. And, uh, you know, Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. But my life, my love, and my lady, it's the sea. And it's about this working girl, uh, waitress served in a pub uh, somewhere in a port city. It was had a sense of mystery and uh, a storyline that really transported you in a way that at that time I thought was really unusual for, you know, just a typical pop song. It really did transport me hearing it. And, you know, great hook, great melody, great changes, great, great record. Uh, so yeah if I had just one uh, coin left that's the one I would drop in the jukebox well Dean we'll play out on on that song and from all electricity take it we couldn't thank you more Uh, it's been a pleasure well Karen Derek it's been a pleasure chatting with you guys and I uh, wish you all the best and uh, look forward to seeing you when I'm next in town All right, you guys take care in this harbor town and she works Laying whiskey down, they say brandy, fetch another round. She serves them whiskey and wine. They say, they say brandy, you're a fan.